We have been in the middle of a series that uh, hopefully you've been enjoying. I've really been enjoying and challenged as we've been talking about heroes and, and trying to connect this reality that heroes are just like us. And some of the situations they find themselves in, the difference between them and us is, is, is something that actually is human and not divine. It's their willingness to stand in such a way as to allow God to do the thing he wants to do in them and through them. And the entire message has kind of been ripped out of this thinking about uh, James chapter five, when James makes this audacious, incredible statement about Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man just like us. And, uh, and we know Elijah experienced so many incredible things from God and for James, the brother of Jesus, to make this outlandish statement that Elijah was a man just like us is an incredible truth and eye-popping and revealing and helps us to look back at some of these folks throughout scripture and say, wow, they were really people just like us. And sometimes we think about them as heroes and we don't know how to process that information. The reality is we don't know how to define a hero anymore. And one of our running jokes through the series has been, you know, a hero is someone with incredible character who has incredible behavior, but it's also a sandwich. And because a hero is also a sandwich, we don't really know how to define when someone is being heroic and not heroic. And so we've been looking at these moments in the lives of these heroes from scriptures and decisions and choices they made that elevated them to hero status. And hopefully you've been enjoying it. And today we're going to walk into a story that I really have come to love and do love and enjoy that is really challenging for me. It's a longer story. And so I'll do my best to bring us all the way through this long story. But it's got some incredible, uh, incredible things for us to learn. And it's a story about someone where through the context of the story, God's never actually referenced in any overt way. He's never prayed to in an overt way, but he's present in every moment. And before we even get into the story, I think there is almost an entire sermon in the reality that sometimes we feel like God's not present. Sometimes we feel like God's not part of our story. We're just going through the motions. But as we look at this story, we see that God's hand is divinely intercepting every moment and guiding every moment of this story. And I think sometimes we forget God's also deeply invested in our story. See, I love a good story. I don't know about you. I love a great story. I love telling stories. I love reading stories. I love watching stories. I love listening to stories. I love a great story. And I was thinking about where my love for a great story began. And I think it was some of the moms, the women in my life that helped me love a great story. See, when I grew up, I grew up in my, in, with my grandparents. My mom uh, uh, was a single mom. And so we lived with my grandma and grandpa. And my grandma was home all the time. So I was with my grandmother more than I was with my mom when I was really young. Uh, my mom worked shift work. But uh, we were always uh, home. And my grandmother loved a good story. As a matter of fact, she called them her stories or her novellas. And uh, by story, I mean she loved her soap operas. Which means as a young boy, I was absolutely mind programmed by these crazy, ridiculous, wild stories that I would watch with my grandmother. I would cuddle up next to her and I would see how the world turned. I knew everything about hospitals, especially general ones, and I knew that there were sands and hourglasses, and that's how the days of our lives worked. And so I grew up with these incredible stories, and some of them were just 
insane. And if you grew up watching it, maybe you're still watching those. It, it, it was just this insane. There was always a love triangle and a death and a villain and a comeback from death. And the villain was now the good guy and was married to the hero, but the heroine is no longer the heroine and she was the villain. And then there, it was just this great drama and story and excitement and, and things would move. And, and as I grew up, I was always entrenched and invested in these stories. And, uh, and I remember when we first got a VCR, when a VCR was a new thing, remember that? And I remember knowing that the VCR was always pre-programmed to the stories. And I was never allowed to touch the VCR without getting approval because if I made or missed one of the stories, whoo! Come on now. So we would watch the stories together, and it was hilarious. As a matter of fact, just as a funny sidebar, one of the, one of the guys, my cousin's friends, who used to hang around our house, actually made it onto a soap opera. He won a contest in Las Vegas to be on a soap opera, got a one-day stint on a soap opera that's led to a job, and he's had a whole career as a soap opera actress, and he grew up in our neighborhood over at my house, and now he's the villain of General Hospital for 30 years. And so uh, it's pretty crazy. So if you know General Hospital, you know Mauricio Bernard. I don't even know his character name anymore. He's the bad guy, though, <laughs> of General Hospital. He grew up in our neighborhood. And so we were always invested in great stories. And today I want to talk about one of the great stories of the Bible. It's a great story. It's an incredible story. It has characters and life uh, and, and excitement and drama, like stories that maybe you've never even thought that these kind of stories were encapsulated within the scriptures. And if you love a good story, I think you love our story from today. As a matter of fact, it has a king, and the king is crazy, uh, which always makes for a good story. He's uh, whimsical, not the good kind of whimsical, but whimsical like the, I think I'll just kill everybody whimsical. And, and he's crazy. He's a great story. He's a great uh, 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 protagonist of the story, but he's not the main protagonist of the story. You also have a orphan. A gal who is raised by a loving uncle who has no reputation, no name, no family, no standing, no power, no authority, who raises through the uh, narrative of our story from the position of a young, powerless orphan to the queen. We have a villain who is one of the best villains in the entire scriptures. He's a megalomaniac who's offended by one man, and because he's offended by one man's refusal to respect him properly, he makes a decision to wipe out an entire race of people, literally attempting to kill 15 million or so people because one person offends him. This is a good story. There's history and intrigue and palace intrigue and plot intrigue and plotting. Um, it fits in the narrative of history in ways that maybe you had never expected. And of course, we're talking about Esther. What a credible, incredible story we have right here in the middle of scripture. And maybe if you're for the first time going, wow, I didn't know all that was in Esther. My challenge for you is gonna be to read the book of Esther. It's about 10 chapters, but it's not an incredibly long read. I can, you can read it in one sitting pretty easily. Um, they're not the longest chapters. It's just a very interesting, fascinating thing. But if I preach through all 10 chapters, you will be here till the end of Mother's Day. So I can't preach the entire story. I'll have to summarize some of the story because there's so many incredible pieces of information here. I want I want to walk you through this incredible story. As you turn in your Bibles, Esther, if you'd like, I'll put most of the scriptures up there. You can follow along some of the things that are happening. But I want to give you some of the history that's going on in the story because it's incredible history. It takes place, the book of Esther actually takes place in a uh, chronological timeline during the time of Ezra. And if you read the book of Ezra, between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 is the story of Esther. 
So if you read Ezra and his story, Ezra's story is about coming out of captivity, going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And the events of Ezra, Esther's life is just wedged right in there. So you kind of can put Esther in historical timeline, but also in biblical timeline of what's actually happening. As a matter of fact, before Esther in about 605 BC, the Babylonians have now attacked all of Israel and Israel falls to Babylon. Babylon takes them out, wipes them out. And Babylon's method of wiping them out is to basically take all of them as slaves back to Babylon and integrate them as both slaves and then just community members of their community. So they're deported from their homeland, from the promised land and forced to move to Babylon. And you know this story because it's when Daniel happens and you know the story of Daniel and you know Daniel and his friends find themselves in King, uh, King Cyrus's court in 605. And that's the beginning of Esther's story and what happens in this narrative. About 605 BC, you see the story of Daniel and then you see the story of Daniel's friends. And, and through the timeline of that, at about 539 BC, about 60 years later, while Daniel's still in captivity, Babylon falls to the king of Persia. And Persia is now the dominant force in all of uh, the world. They actually have a kingdom that's about one and a half million square miles. It's no joke. And so Persia uh, uh, is now in control, and this is still happening. You can see in the book of Daniel by about chapter 8 and 9, you see all these things happening. And King Darius allows some of the Jews to leave and return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was raised and destroyed when Babylon came in and took them all into captivity. And about 50,000 Jews return home and start the process of rebuilding the temple. And that story is encapsulated in Ezra and all of these pieces weave together. And, and to go and take a trip from the heart of Babylon back to Jerusalem was about a thousand mile journey through the desert. So it was a, about a four month journey to go back and do that and reestablish that. So some of the communication isn't happening as quickly as you might think it's happening in the historical narrative because they didn't have email or cell phones. So we see our airplanes. So Ezra tells this story of a work stoppage and trying to get the temple rebuilt and they're working and trying to do all those things. And the majority of the Jewish nation is still in captivity and has been for a couple of generations now when we pick up on Queen Ezra. I mean, Queen Ezra, Queen Esther. And now we meet about 476 BC, we meet Esther and she's the future queen of Persia. And so we pick up the story in the book of Esther and what's happening. And I got to recap a little bit because if I read it to you, it will take too long, but it's an amazing story. You should read it to make sure I'm not making this up. It's crazy. King Xerxes has become the king of Persia, the most powerful nation in the earth. And he believes because he's the king of the most powerful nation in the earth, he must also be divine. And so as a God king, as he's planted himself at, he expects a certain amount of adoration and worship from his people in order to establish his authority. And he is in authority. There's no question about it. So he throws the kind of party you would throw if you wanted everyone to worship you. He says, for 180 days, everyone is just going to observe my splendor and see how awesome I am. 
It's a 180-day party. It's a pretty good party. I don't know if you've been to a party that's lasted more than a day, but 180 days is a pretty solid length of time to celebrate. When you're king and in control and no one threatens you, you can throw a party as long as you want to throw a party. So he throws a 180-day party, and they're partying hard and enjoying the celebration, and he's admiring the splendor of his house and of his court. And at the end of 180 days, they haven't partied hard enough yet, so they go, it's banquet time, seven consecutive days of giant banquets and parties and as a matter of fact, you get into the story, and I can't make this up. He's literally saying, drink more, party hard. I want to release people, drink as much of whatever you want. And they're getting smashed, and it's the longest bender, I mean banquet, in the scriptures. They're partying hard. At the end of 180 days plus seven days of partying more, even intensely, they have this brilliant idea. And along the side of this, he has a queen by the name of Vashti who has some measure of his heart and authority. And she's managing his household and she's throwing a sub party. So the women aren't invited into the main party. She's throwing a sub party and they're partying as well. And in the middle of the end of this whole uh, party happening, he, he uh, upon the advice of his advisors and closest to him, he sends for Vashti and he says, he goes, you guys think you've been partying. You should see my smoking hot wife, the queen. She really brings the party. And in his kind of drunken revelry, he calls for her to come and entertain my friends. And she says, uh-uh, that's not how this queen rolls. You and your drunken frat boy friends can have your own entertainment. We have our entertainment over here. I don't have to come and do that. I refuse. Well, she makes a stand, and that stands a healthy stand, you, I think, and I would agree. However, she does not have the authority of the king and has defied the authority of the king, and he and his drunken advisors have a dilemma because how in the world can they allow, if the queen defies the king, then what hope do they have of keeping their wives in line? It's in the scriptures, so don't hate on me for making that observation. It's really the culture that they're in, and they're trying to discover how to do this. And so they hatch a plan, and they tell the king, you know what we should do is we should banish Vashti because no one should be allowed to stand in opposition to a god king. Well, this strokes his ego, and in his kind of drunken party revelry atmosphere, he says, kick her out. Vashti's gone. That's the end of chapter one, more or less. And in chapter two, it starts a conversation. It says that some time has passed. Now, this is where it gets fascinating because if you do a little research in history, you realize that uh, although the scripture doesn't tell us this narrative, we know what's happening during these four years. The Persian king Xerxes has actually led a military campaign. He's been successful on every campaign so far. His nation has been uh, able to override Babylon. He owns everything he can see. A, a million and a half miles of real estate, but it's not good enough because there's other land that other people that aren't worshiping him as a God king, they're in Greece. And so he leads his men and his troops into Greece and, and believes because he's a God king, there's no one who could resist him, but he runs into 300 fellas. Maybe you've heard the story. They're ripped. They have CGI'd abs. And they say something like, this is Sparta. 
and they resist King Xerxes. And this is the Xerxes from the scriptures. Maybe you've never put that together, but this is where we're at in history. And so if you've seen a picture, uh, a depiction of him, you know the kind of king we're dealing with here. The, the maniacal, uh, mani- maniacal, what am I trying to say? Picture of his own uh, success and worth. And he's just not, he's not, going to hear that he's not the greatest, but for the first time he experiences loss. And for four years, they wage a campaign in Greece and they don't win. So chapter two picks up, they've returned home and there's something in him that seems to have happened. Maybe it's humility. Maybe it's just looking for comfort that, that to reaffirm his uh, uh, perceived deity. And so he wants a queen again, but Vashti's been banished. And there's a moment where the consideration is maybe to go and reclaim her and bring her back. But his closest advisors who were part and parcel to banishing her are like, don't do that. Because if the queen comes back, who's she going to be mad at? Probably the folks that said you should banish her. So they say, well, let's do something else. Why don't you, we've got a giant kingdom. Why don't you have a beauty contest, a lottery, see who you want to bring into the temple and you choose a new king and that, a queen. That will give you comfort and you'll remember how important you are and you'll feel the power and authority of your position again. And that's where we meet Esther. So I'm in chapter two of the book of Esther and you can follow along. You should read the whole thing because I can't read it all to you today, uh, but I will read some. And so in chapter two, verse five, we meet Esther. It says, now there was in the citadel of Susa. Now the citadel of Susa is an amazing thing in history. We don't even know anything about that uh, uh, from the scriptures, but uh, Josephus and some other historians have told us that the citadel that he built built had, had, uh, I believe it was 36 pillars in it. And they were all about 60 feet tall. It is filled with splendor and wealth. And it's all designed to focus energy and attention on the throne. And that's where he sits. And it says, in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And his name is Mordecai. He's the son of Jer, the son of Shimea, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So we know that around 605 BC, that when Babylon came and conquered all of Israel, Mordecai's ancestors were hauled off. And Mordecai is now second, third generation living in captivity, trying to figure out how to maintain his identity in a land that doesn't want him to be who he is. He's trying to wrestle through that. Now, Mordecai has a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, this is fascinating. We find out for the first time that Esther has two names, two identities, a Jewish cultural heritage name of Hadassah. And Hadassah literally means myrtle tree. It's a small, beautiful, bloomed tree, something that's pleasant to look at, but not an invasive thing, something that has planted in a specific place for a specific time, maybe a time such as this. And Esther's given name is Hadassah, myrtle tree, or compassion. 
We also know that Esther is a orphan for the first time and that she has grown up not knowing her mother or her father and that her uncle has given care for her. And we also know that her other name and her other identity, her Persian name is Esther. And Esther is a Persian name, which literally means star. And we get the first juxtaposition of these two identities that she carries within her throughout the story. And one of those identities is this simple reality that she's been planted firmly, part of her family. She was an orphan, but she was planted somewhere with intent. She's where she is for a reason. And the other identity, the one given to her by the Persians, her identity among her captors, among the people who are not her people, is that she is, in fact, a star. And a star is a beautiful picture of who she is. A star is one of those incredible things, a constellation, a a life-giving source of direction. It's a thing that if you see in the sky, you may now be able to navigate the course of your life because a star can give you some direction. It's something to be looked at by, for generations, maybe even to come. And we see these two things. She is rooted and planted somehow, even though her background would not have uh, supported that, she has been divinely intercepted. Her uncle has cared for her. She is planted in there, but that's not all she is in the land of Persia. She's a star. And we find out something else. We find out that she is very good looking. In fact, she's about to win a beauty contest. She's about to win a beauty contest. Verse eight says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggaiah. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggaiah who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day, as a good stepfather, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem and he wanted to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. She's been drawn into this beauty contest. She didn't sign up for it. She was selected. She gets brought into this harem. She gets immediate favor. She's receiving beauty treatments, but he's still concerned. He's still looking out for her. Verse 12 says, before a girl's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete, check this out, ladies, 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. I know many of you would love a spa day. Six months of spa days. And then they change it over in six months of the next level of spa days, one full year before your turn to audition for the beauty contest would happen. So for a year, she finds herself in charm school, beauty school, learning the court and learning uh, what it's like to be in this position. I got to be honest with you at this point in the story while studying, I was about to tap out. I began to think, hmm, this is a tough story to share about being heroic Is she heroic for being beautiful? That's a trivial thing to be heroic for. I'm not sure I want to stand in front of all of you and say it's such a good thing that she was beautiful. That seems so trivial. That's why she's famous. She's got a whole book in the Bible because she's good looking. Now, I know some of us carry a curse of beauty, and it's difficult for those of us that carry that curse sometimes to have the proper humility when we're telling stories about our beauty, but for Esther, this was a trivial thing. 
And I got a little frustrated, agitated in my mind and in my soul as I started to think, God, why is the story so grounded in her beauty? Why is this such a theme of it when it's something so trivial? And I came across this quote in my study, and it, it kind of, for me, broke open the seal, and it was this simple reality that sometimes big doors swing on small hinges. And things that seem small and trivial are actually pivot points that God uses to strategically move his people into positions where greater opportunities and greater things are going to happen. Think about it. How many things that have seemed trivial in your life have led to the position you find yourself in right now? The home you're in, the family you're in, the relationship you're in the place you work, the friendship circles you're in, this body, how many seemingly trivial things, decisions, moments, dominoes that fell that led to where you're at right now. And in the moment, they didn't seem major. I just put my name on this one list. I just saw this thing. This person recognized this ability I had, this talent. I had favor because I made a relationship. They picked me because I was beautiful. I mean, that's how I got this job. I'm saying. <laughs> We're having fun. Can we have fun, church? How many little things happen to position you right where they are, right where you are today? And if you look back, aren't they all significant? So I was challenged in my heart to recognize and not despise small things that position you where you are today. You never know what big things God has in store for you. David was good with the sling. That was a small thing. Big impact. Big impact. Sometimes we think the thing we're doing right now is not that important. It's not very spiritual. It doesn't have massive kingdom impact. It's mundane. It's daily. It's part of just who I am and what I'm doing. Yet we don't realize it's a hinge that God's used to position the door that he's about to open so that the kingdom of God can have access to the place where you're planted. God knew what he was doing. Her beauty was not mundane. He creates things the way they are. He gives you the gifts that you have if you take credit for those things. It's like trying to sign somebody else's artwork. So Esther isn't signing her own artwork. She's simply moving through the opportunities and the doors that God's opened for her. She does not know she's part of an epic story. She is not aware someone's going to be writing this down and that thousands of years later, we're going to be having these conversations. She simply goes from orphan to beauty pageant winner to queen. God creates things the way they are. He knew Xerxes was going to be looking on the outward, so he raised up a star because trouble was coming. Chapter 2, verse 17, I'll move ahead. It says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And so he set a royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. He's great at banquets. Yeah. Esther's banquet for all the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instruction as she had done when he was bringing her up. She respected her elders and her family as she should and could. Verse 21, some of the 
palace intrigue begins to unfold. It says, during that time, Mordecai, who's always hanging around the gate, he's looking after her. He feels responsible. He's her stepfather and uncle. During that time, he was sitting at the gate, and Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry, and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And all of this was recorded in the book of the annals and the book of the annals and it was presented into the king. Now that seems like an insignificant sentence, but it's another door hinge. If you read the whole story closely, I don't have time to unpack all of that. If that's not recorded in the book of the annals, then the king doesn't read it one night and remember that it's incredibly important for him to say thanks to Mordecai and it's another domino that falls and maybe, just maybe, writing down the incredible moments and things that God's done is important because you can revisit them and it will remind you to be grateful in times when you're not feeling so grateful, just saying. More small hinges. And so we see their favor grow and gain, and, and we see Mordecai still strategically outside of the gate, and Esther's now raised into this incredibly significant position in the kingdom. She's the queen, and now we meet our villain, and his name is Haman, or Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamathatha, the Agatite. Good luck with those. And elevated him, giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles and all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and they paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded concerning him. But listen to this, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Haman bursts on the scene. He wins the fame and, and reward and favor of the king. And we know the king likes to throw banquets and be generous. And he says, Haman, you've done so great. I want to honor you at a high place. And we're going to have a celebration of you. And everyone will bow down and recognize how authority you have. And you'll be like a god to them the way I'm like a god to them. And Mordecai says, homie, don't play that. I don't bow before anyone but God. Verse three, it says, then the royal officials at the king's gate, they asked Mordecai, who's always hanging around there for some reason, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. He says, that reason I don't bow is because our people only bow before God. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. And over the next chapter, you see this horrific plot and plan that Haman puts into place. And there's a thing when you're a megalomaniac, when, 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 when the thing you honor and worship the most is yourself, there's no greater offense than when someone doesn't validate that honor of yourself, when your pride gets pricked and damaged, when it affects the idol that you worship and the idol that he worshiped was himself. He couldn't tolerate it. And he said, this representative of this group of people isn't going to bow to me. And since he's not going to bow to me, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill them all. And the plan that he enacts is he gets the favor of the king and the king says, well, you can have my signet ring. And with the signet ring, he's able to write new laws. And the new law that he writes, kind of giving some false information to the king, he, he exaggerates the scope of the problem. And he says, we got to get rid of this entire group of people, this 
nation of almost 15 million that have now third generation living in our in our uh, midst. And so what we're going to do is we're going to write a uh, letter to all the officials throughout the land and tell them that on a certain day, it's going to be national kill all the Jews day. And we're going to have a plan and conspire and the Jews won't even know it's about to happen, but we'll make it legal to go in and kill them and take their property. And that will properly motivate the people who would want to do that kind of behavior. And so they gather together this secret plan and he sends it out and the missives through all of the uh, officials and they pick a day and make a plan and they're going to kill them all. Now, Mordecai has this uh, tenacious habit of hanging around the city gates. And so he becomes aware of this plan. And as he becomes aware of this plan, this elaborate plan, and has a due date and a timeline on it, he recognizes that they better do something now. Now, this is a part that always makes me smile and laugh as I read the story, I think. At what point was Mordecai tempted to just be like, hey, dude, it's cool. Like, don't kill 15 million people, I'll bow, but he won't bow. And the people of God should never surrender the values of God. He says, yeah, it may isolate us and put us all at risk, but I need to stand for my faith and for my God, not bow to the pressure of the world. But I wondered about that as I read that and thought what a amount of courage Mordecai must have had to literally be <laughs> responsible for the potential genocide of his people because he alone would not give respect to the person that God did not elect. And so... He goes to Esther and through an uh, 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 individual, he's not allowed to get into the presence of the queen anymore. She's gone from his adoptive orphan niece to royalty, and he can't get into her presence, so he sends a messenger to her and says, this is the plan that's coming out of the palace, and is there any way you can intercede and any way you can help because otherwise we're toast? And so we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4, verse 9. His emissary, Hattach, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, and she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without having been summoned by the king, there's but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception for this is if the king extends the golden scepter to him and spares his life, but it's been 30 days. 30 days have passed since I was called in to see the king. Now, that's a great marriage, first of all, but we won't go there. She says, listen, I understand that there's a problem, but, you know, my life is complicated. And if you know anything about the king, he's crazy. And it would be very dangerous to violate this policy and go into his presence without permission. And so I can't go into his presence without permission or I will be killed now there is one out he may extend the scepter but that's a great gamble especially if i come in unannounced and he has no reason to expect me there i haven't seen him in a month verse 12 when esther's words were reported to mordecai he sent back this answer mordecai says don't think do not think that because you're in the king's house you alone of all the jews will escape he says listen you're one of us if you're worried that there's a chance you might die, let me inform you there is a certainty that you will die because you are, in fact, one of us. Verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, listen, if you're an underliner, this would be something pretty powerful to underline. 
Verse 14, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He says, listen, if you don't step into your destiny, if you don't move forward, if you don't take the risk and take the step, God will still accomplish his plan. And he has a divine plan for our people. He has a divine plan for the earth. He will accomplish the thing he wants to accomplish. But if you don't step forward in this moment, your father's family will perish, you and your father's family. And then listen to this line. He says, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. He says, who knows that maybe the place you're at is by divine appointment for this moment. This could be the reason you find yourself in this season. What if it's possible that the reason you are where you are is because God's assigned you to be there? What if the things that seem trivial and mundane and coincidental and lucky were none of those things? They were actually the footsteps of an engaged father who had a plan for one of his children to point them to a place where they would be divinely positioned to receive from God something incredible. Can I ask you this morning this question? What if you are where you are today for such a time as this? What if the situation you find yourself in, though you feel like maybe some of the steps that got you here were mundane, maybe those steps were not uh, uh, something that you thought had divine influence. They were simple decisions. Should I go left? Should I go right? Should I take this class? Should I say yes to that? And you thought, I'm not sure what God's doing in all of this, but what if it was by divine appointment, in fact, that you found yourself in the position you are right now? Maybe you think like Hadassah, that you've just been planted and it just happens to be where you are, but maybe in fact, God sees Esther and says, no, 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 you are planted, but it wasn't just to be there, it was to be a star. Maybe God has strategically placed you in this place for such a time as this. You know, the reality is for some of you, you're thinking, but you don't understand what I do. Maybe you're a teacher and you're thinking, you know, my, my job right now is just to teach. I'm a teacher. That's my role and I'm teaching. And maybe you see teacher, but God sees divinely appointed star positioned so that the classroom you teach today will know what it's like when Jesus teaches the classroom because his star is represented there. Maybe you're in the business world, you're a businessman or a businesswoman, and you think, I just have this job and I'm putting in my nine to five and I'm trying to earn my income. And God says, yeah, you think you've just been planted there, Hadassah, but the reality is, Esther, I have a plan for you in this position that you find yourself in this moment. And you're divinely appointed because the world needs to know what it looks like when Jesus works at your job. Maybe you think it's just happenstance that you ended up in the neighborhood and the house that you're in right now with the neighbors that you happen to have right now and a series of mundane decisions made that happen and financial decisions and things like that. And then you look around and you think, well, I'm planted here, but it doesn't seem that significant. But God says, no, that's not true. You're my star. You're divinely appointed and positioned. Is it possible at such a time as this that it's important for your neighborhood to know what it looks like when Jesus lives in your house? Just wondering. 
Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom right now. Come on, moms. And you're spending more time at home than you ever have before. And you think, this is just a season of my life when I'm planted and I'm pouring into my kids. And it's important, but I'm doing this. And, and some of these decisions and things seem mundane. And they're not as important as they could be. And God's saying, no, it's such a time as this. I needed a star in this household to reach to a generation that needs to know what it looks like when Jesus is their parent. Maybe it's possible you're retired right now or looking at retirement and you're thinking my influence and my season of influence has shifted and been changed and I was a star maybe or not a star in that season, but it's a new season and I'm now just kind of planted where I've been planted. And isn't it possible that God would want to know in such a time as this, what does it look like when Jesus is retired in your circle of relationship? Would Jesus retire that way? What would it look like? And you become his star, divinely planted and pointed in that place. Sometimes you think these things are small and trivial, but when we lose sight of the bigger picture, we start to lose sight of our purpose. And then we wander through our lives aimlessly looking for a purpose, not convinced that God might have a purpose in the place where we're at. What if we were convinced it was for such a time as this, in the past couple of weeks, one of the really neat experiments, I'll call it, but growth steps we had in our, in our rooted groups is we talked about how to share our testimony. And some of us had a very challenging conversation about what it means to share our story. And it was challenging to think about, for some of us, it's terrifying to think about having to, in just a couple or three minutes, say, the three kind of pictures of this is where my life was before Jesus, this is what Jesus did, and this is where my life is today. And forming that into a cohesive conversation is very challenging. And if you can't do that, let me challenge you. That's an incredible exercise to figure out. Can you tell the story of how you became a follower of Jesus in just a couple of minutes? It should be a tool that you have and are equipped with as a follower of Jesus. If you haven't developed that like any muscle, you should work on it a little. But then there was a challenge within the homework to say, is there someone in your circle of relationship right now that you might be able to just share that story? Look for those appointments and ask God by the power and favor of his Holy Spirit to give you opportunity to share your story. And I'm not going to lie to you, it was really hard. And it was daunting to think about that. But let me ask you a question because you're here and um, somehow you got here. Is there any of you in the room today that would say, you know what, I really hate the person who told me about Jesus. Now, if you're sitting next to them, you have permission to not participate. But other than that, would you raise your hand and just say, I hate that person that told me about Jesus. Hmm. That's interesting then because suddenly it seems like it might be important to recognize that the place where you're divinely planted, that though you think I am a tree rooted in this spot for this season, God might say you're a star for others to see and recognize my love and authority because I'm betting the person who shared with you wasn't thinking like Esther wasn't thinking that in this moment I'm being a star and promoted to some position of authority. They were simply trying to be obedient and available to God. And again, all of these small, seemingly insignificant steps bringing them to this moment where God, utilize them and look at where you are today. 
And some of you have been thinking as I've been saying this, well, that's fine, Pastor Mike, but you don't work where I work or live where I live or know the groups and circles that I float in. And you don't know what tremendous risk it would be to stand up for God in that environment. I'll be that person and they'll avoid me if I'm at work and, and, I, and I look for an opportunity and say, you know, how are you, can I pray for you? And, 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 and I try to peel that back and say, you know, this is who I am and what I believe and how that applies to that thing. They're gonna isolate me and I'll be rejected from the cool kids table to which, Esther would say, I'll be dead. And you say, wait a second, you don't understand. Maybe you're a student and you're thinking, I, 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 there's no way if I bring that up, my professors will think less of me and my classmates will think less of me and I'll be rejected again. And, 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 and the pressure of that life will get harder. And Esther would say, but I would be dead. Maybe you're thinking I'll just die on the inside anyways because I'll be mortified and embarrassed and terrified and I'd rather be dead. And Esther would say, but I'll actually be dead. And so I wonder about the risk that we were willing to take in order to hear from God. And so Esther has to decide, is it in fact worth the risk? Verse 15, so Esther sends this reply to Mordecai and says, go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days or nights and I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king. And even though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. It's against company policy. The school doesn't want me to talk like this. I'm not allowed to share my ideas and my faith. And Nestor says, but if I perish, I perish. And she steps out in faith. Because of time, you're going to have to read kind of the conclusion of the story, but it goes a little something like this. Esther reaches out and steps out in faith, and the people pray for her, and they pray and they fast, and we fasted and prayed, church, and we know we don't fast and pray to manipulate the hand of God. We fast and pray to be ready for whatever response God wants to give us so that we are adequately prepared to receive that. And as she prepares to do that, she steps out in faith, and she stands up for her faith and for her people and for her God. And an elaborate series of events happens. It's fun. It's intrigue. There's palace intrigue. And Haman gets the worst of it and ends up hanging on a gallows that he built for Mordecai. And ultimately, the king grants favor to Esther and is kind towards her and allows the Jewish people to defend themselves and gather together. And a battle that was supposed to be a slaughter in one direction becomes a slaughter in the other direction. And the people of God are actually blessed and provided for. And in Esther chapter 8, at the end of the story, it says for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor in every province and every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. They see what God can do in a people group who are oppressed and they think, I wanna be on that team because I see the power and the favor of the Lord present. And Esther becomes a star. A true north, a point of reference for someone who's faithful to God. And I just want you to notice a couple of things. And the first is this. God can use whatever you got. Whatever you have, he'll use. And some of us are thinking, I don't bring that much to the table. I don't speak well. I can't sing or play guitar. I'm not as great looking as this character was. And, and God's saying, listen, the Lord doesn't look 
at the things a man looks at. Man's always looking at the outward appearance, but the Lord is looking at the heart. And this is a story of a person who the man always looked at her outward appearance, but God was always concerned about her heart. Proverbs 31, we recognize charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised and Esther lives and embodies that. She's promoted because of how she looks on the outside. But God was moving her to where she needed to be because of who she had become on the inside. And that is really her story. She was brave. She was courageous. She was a risk taker. She had no expectation that she'd become famous. The plan was never for her to become famous. She had no power, no authority. She was an orphan. Becoming a queen was not the goal. And she didn't know she was going to have generational impact. But if you look at her impact, it is literally generational. We know that her story happens in the book of Ezra while the temple is being rebuilt. And we know that she is married to King Xerxes. And we also know throughout history that Xerxes' son becomes the next king and his name is Artaxerxes. Now Artaxerxes is a fascinating character throughout history. We meet him at several points in the scripture, especially in the book of Nehemiah. And if you were here on Palm Sunday, you know that something critical happened in Nehemiah. Nehemiah went to receive the favor of a king named Artaxerxes and said, can I have permission to go and rebuild the walls that are fallen at the holy city of my God? God. And we know because of Daniel chapter 10 that there is a prophetic timeline that is about to get activated when King Artaxerxes gives favor to Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes' father was married to Esther. And we see favor being given to this culture, to this people, where for 30 years he has seen, now it is even possible that he's the son of Esther, though we don't have any historical evidence to corroborate that. He certainly grew up for 30 or 35 years with Esther as his father's bride. So when Nehemiah comes and says, I'm grieved and I want to see the, 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 the wall rebuilt in the holy city of my God, and he's looking for favor. And we go, why in the world would Artaxerxes extend this incredible favor and give resources and be a, a blessing to the people of God who he has as captives? It makes no sense except for God is in control. And you never know, come on now, when God is going to use you as a star to impact generation after generation after generation. That was never part of her plan. But she was willing and got into the position. And I'm just trying to tell you that it is possible that what if all the steps of your life had been preparing you for this moment where today you have the opportunity to have influence with the people who are in your life today. And maybe, just maybe, you're supposed to be a star in that place. Moms, it's Mother's Day. And as we give you honor and, 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 and appreciate you and bless you, maybe... God's been preparing you all this time to be the star that your kid will look back and say, that's what it looked like when Jesus was my mom and loved me and led me and cared for me. What if all the steps in your life had been preparing you for this moment and you think it's mundane and you think it's been small things and, and God's saying, no, I've planted you divinely where I want to plant you because you thought that your whole identity was just where you're at right now, but I see a star. 
And so I'm wondering, as you think about your circumstance and your situation, if I could ask just this one question, what risk could you take that would change your world? What risk could you take? What place could you step into the story of God? You could lift your voice. You could make a stand. You could step in with favor and kindness. You could be Jesus' hands and feet in that situation. And God could, in turn, utilize you the way he used Esther. Well, although it seems like many trivial things had placed you in this place, there was a divine appointment for that moment, and you stepped into that destiny and took that risk. And look and see what impact God had done through you. I'm wondering today if we as a group of believers, a family, just believed that we could do that. What risk would change our world?